I don't know where this story starts. If I had to guess, it was a small, half-constructed shelter, not very far from the gate to the Garden of Eden. I'm guessing here, but next to the hut, I imagine a garden just big enough to feed two people, maybe with a few rows of vegetables and a little irrigation channel running through it. There might be a fire pit nearby with homemade tools leaning up against a tree. This little farm was usually busy, shovels chipping at the ground, the crackle of a fire, the splash of water. But in my imagination, this story starts on a day when those noises were quiet. On a day when a new sound came from the house. A baby began to cry for the first time. On that day, as Eve looked down at her son, the child who she hoped might save them, I imagine there was a smile on her face as she gave him the name Cain. If you didn't figure it out from the introduction, there are a lot of gaps in the story I'm about to tell. The first 11 chapters of Genesis span 2,083 years of history. On average, each of the 299 verses in those chapters covers seven years all on its own. All stories are abridged, but in this part of the Bible, the stories are especially that way. We get the highlights, but there are also a lot of blank spots. And this story begins with one of those blanks. Because after Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, Genesis doesn't say what they did next. We know Adam and Eve required the same essentials we need today. Food, water, shelter, warmth. But there were no other people to help them. When they left the Garden, there weren't grocery stores or hotels. No neighbors came over for a barn raising or lent them a hand with digging a cellar. They didn't have that safety net. In 1620, the Pilgrims founded the Plymouth Colony. But by the end of that first winter, about half of the settlers were already buried with markers above their graves. The rest might have died as well, but for Samoset, a Native American who made contact with them in mid-March, and for Tesquantum, usually known as Squanto, who came a few days later, worked as their interpreter, and showed them what plants to farm and how to farm them. Adam and Eve didn't have a native to teach them how to survive. They had to figure out everything for themselves. And the only tools they had were the ones they could make from the wilderness around them. Genesis glosses over this part of the story. It doesn't say how they did any of it. I'd guess they started by foraging for wild fruits and berries, then building a shelter and clearing land for a garden. But that's my speculation. We know almost nothing about what happened during the months, maybe years, after Adam and Eve first left the garden. Genesis skips that part and begins the story again when they start to have children. And the first of those children is a boy named Cain. Now, we don't know this was the first baby ever born. Genesis doesn't say that. But Eve reacts that way. When Cain is born, Eve says, quote, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. End quote. At least, that's what she says in English. In the original Hebrew, she says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. The last word is literally Yahweh, the sacred name for God the Jews later in history tried not to say out loud. 
This could be Eve giving thanks for a healthy baby, but there might also be more to it. Eve is probably thinking about something God said. He predicted one of her children would crush the serpent, and now she's hoping this little boy is that child. She names the baby Cain, and then right after Cain is born, Eve has another son she names Abel. The story is a little odd here. It doesn't have the regular comments about Eve becoming pregnant and having a baby. After Cain is born, it says that Eve, quote, continued to give birth, end quote. It makes some people think Abel wasn't born months or years later, but right after Cain, that Cain and Abel were twins, maybe only a few minutes apart. We don't know that, but in any case, the story starts with these two boys, two boys who grow up and go into different professions. Cain becomes a gardener, Abel becomes a shepherd. We don't know why they went into different careers. It could have been preference. It could have been necessity. I imagine as a pioneer, you did the job that needed to be done. One job wasn't better than the other, just different. Cain and Abel grow up. They work as a farmer and a shepherd. And then probably when they're adults, or at least old enough to be responsible for themselves, they each gather together an offering to bring to God. Before I go on from here, I should mention that we're not quite sure why Cain and Abel brought offerings. This is another part of the story Genesis skips, but it does give us one clue. At the end of the last chapter, only eight verses earlier, when God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he gave them animal skins to cover their nakedness. That detail might be a little prologue to what happens here. Those animal skins might have come from God's demonstration of the first sacrifice, and God may have given Adam and Eve instructions at that point about what they were supposed to do in the future. We don't know, but Genesis does say both Cain and Abel brought sacrifices, so there were some sort of rules they recognized. They both knew they were supposed to bring offerings to God, and they each brought something from the things they worked on. This all happens possibly near the end of a year, maybe around harvest time, and you can picture the brothers getting things ready. Cain starts collecting fruit, picking it off trees, harvesting it from the ground. Abel starts gathering up his animals. Though, all these things you picture might be a lot different than what we think of today. Plants and animals might have changed a lot in the last 6,000 years. Take bananas as an example. Today, bananas have tiny seeds and lots of fruit. But farmers bred them to be that way. Wild bananas aren't like that at all. They're filled with large seeds and almost no fruit, almost no pulp to eat. And sometimes changes can happen quickly, too. If I asked you to picture an avocado, you'd probably think of something with rough, black skin. That's a Hass avocado. In 2017, Hass avocados made up about 80% of worldwide avocado production and 95% of avocados in the United States. But that type was only discovered in the 1920s. Before that, the main variety had smooth skin and it was green, not black. Because of these changes, we can't really picture Cain's offering. He would have brought the ancestors of the plants we know of, and Abel's animals would have been the same way. For those, you can maybe picture some combination, some hybrid or mix of mountain goats and bighorn sheep and impalas and gazelles. We don't know specifics, but whatever it was, Cain gathers it up into this basket or bundle, and 
Abel goes and rounds up his animals, maybe from some small corral. And they each go over to a place where offerings are made, probably over near the gate to the Garden of Eden, where God stands blocking the path to the Tree of Life. Genesis doesn't say if an altar stood there, but the next time a sacrifice comes up in the Bible, there is an altar. So they probably built altars here too. If so, they would have been made from natural, uncut stones, nothing sculpted or decorative, and they would have stacked them up to form a rough platform. Cain and Abel come with their offerings. They each gather together stones for an altar, maybe collect some dry sticks and something to light a fire with. And then you see Abel lead one of his sheep over toward the altar. He gets there, he reaches down, ties its feet, and lays it up on top of the wood. And then he takes out a knife. This was probably a stone knife, maybe made from something that can be chipped to form an edge, something like flint or obsidian. And these stone tools could have been very sharp. Flint was used for surgery in other places in the Bible, and obsidian can have a cutting edge only a few molecules thick. It's sharper than a modern steel blade. It can make cleaner cuts than a surgical scalpel. Abel gets out this razor and reaches down to hold the animal still. And this probably wasn't easy. This animal came from the best part of his flock. It's a bit like a pet, an animal that trusts him. And if it's like the traditional method used today, Abel takes the knife and slices it across the sheep's throat. The word altar does mean to slaughter. And it's a quick motion. He wants to kill it with as little pain as possible. And the story says God accepted Abel's offering. Now, we don't know how it was clear that God accepted the offering. A common theory based on other stories in the Bible suggests fire came down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. The closest comparison I can think of comes from the weather. In meteorology, there's a phenomenon known as a bolt from the blue. It happens when a lightning strike comes from a clear blue sky. These bolts travel from some storm beyond the horizon out of sight, and they can cover 25 miles in less than a second and strike the ground in a place with sunny skies. You can imagine Abel standing there, this perfect blue sky above him, and then the flash of light as fire comes down on his offering. Abel might get blasted with heat. Lightning can be five times hotter than the surface of the sun. And he might get blinded with light as the fire burns up his sacrifice. Whatever happened, whatever the sign was, it showed that God was pleased by Abel's offering. And then the scene shifts to Cain. He repeats the process. He does the same thing as Abel. He lays out sticks and kindling and opens up his bundle or basket and starts arranging his food. Maybe there's wheat and barley, maybe grapes, maybe olives. He gets out whatever he'd brought, gets everything settled on the altar, and steps back, expecting a similar sign from God. You can picture smoke rising from Abel's altar in the background, and Cain waiting. I get this idea of him shifting back and forth from one foot to the other, and He's getting uncomfortable because nothing happens. Whatever God did for Abel, it doesn't happen a second time. There's no fire from heaven, no sign from God. If anyone's watching, they know Cain's offering is being rejected. Cain's face gets red, the hairs on his neck start to tingle. 
He looks at the plants laid on the altar, starting to wilt in the sun. He sees his offering being rejected by God. And Cain gets mad. Cain gets angry. And God comes to try to reason with him. And God tells him that if he does what he's supposed to do, he'll be accepted. I want to pause for a moment at this point. Because while there aren't a lot of details in Genesis about what Cain did wrong, this comment from God, that if Cain does the right thing, he will be accepted, this is one of the main hints we get. Because Cain doesn't argue. He doesn't claim he had no idea what he's done wrong. He doesn't protest. And this silence suggests Cain knew what the rules were and that he was ignoring them by choice. And our best guess about the rules he was ignoring is that they were the same ones spelled out in detail in some other books of the Bible. And if that is the case, we have a few ideas about what Cain did wrong. The most obvious difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering is that Cain brought plants while Abel brought animals. And since the Bible says sins are only forgiven by shedding blood, Cain's sacrifice didn't meet the criteria, so God didn't accept it. This is a tempting conclusion, but it assumes Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices for their sins. And those aren't the only sacrifices the Bible describes. Those later books of the Bible also talk about grain offerings or offerings from a harvest, and the ritual specifically tells people to bring plants for their sacrifice. If that was the offering being given here, Cain was doing the right thing. The second idea is that Cain didn't bring a good offering. Offerings to God were supposed to come from the best part of a crop. Genesis says Abel picked from his best animals. But there's no comment about the kinds of things Cain offered. So some people think Cain brought common stuff, the leftovers. He might have taken the best for himself and given the other stuff to God. You can see why God wouldn't accept that sort of selfish offering. If you look at these two ideas, bringing an offering without blood or not bringing his best to God, they're both symptoms of a deeper problem. Cain came with the wrong attitude. Genesis says Cain brought his offering, and then when it was rejected, he got angry. You get this picture of someone who was confident to the point of arrogance. And then when he was disappointed, he was someone who felt insulted. Both Martin Luther and Matthew Henry, a famous Protestant minister from the 1600s, talk about Cain's offering as giving away what was going on inside Cain's head. He may have believed he was good enough his offering would please God regardless of what he brought or how he brought it. And then that didn't happen. Like I said earlier, at this point where Cain gets angry, God comes to talk to him, to convince him to do the right thing. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, but that was a momentary thing. Cain is the first person in the Bible to maintain that rebellion. And it shows how much God cares for humans. Because God doesn't abandon Cain. He doesn't dismiss him. He comes to save Cain from himself and to give him a second chance. And as God does this, he uses an interesting phrase. God comes to Cain and he says, quote, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. End quote. God warns Cain 
sin lies at the door. Some versions say it is crouching at the door. It's the image of some sort of wild animal waiting to pounce. God's warning Cain that if he isn't careful, sin will ambush him. This analogy was so potent, it became a part of some ancient mythology. The Mesopotamians believed certain demons lurked outside doorways to spring on them when they came out. God is trying to get Cain to see his mistake, to change course. Like C.S. Lewis said, if you're going the wrong way, sometimes the best way forward is to turn around. But Cain is too offended to listen. God's working on Cain here, but after the conversation ends, nothing changes. Cain doesn't calm down. He doesn't come and offer the right sacrifice the right way. The story just moves on. We don't know how long this took. Maybe everything happened in one day. Maybe there were nights where Cain laid awake, thinking how God had insulted him. We don't know the timing. But either way, this is the part of the story where Cain becomes the villain. The story says, quote, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Bible doesn't go into detail about what happened. It doesn't talk about adrenaline or a dry mouth or sweaty palms. We don't have those pieces of the story. But if you look closely at the languages the Bible was written in, there might be a couple of clues about what happened. Though, to explain them, I need to talk about names for a minute. When Cain and Abel were born, I didn't tell you what their names meant. In Hebrew, Abel means vanity or nothingness. It's a strange name to give a baby, and some scholars think that it wasn't given at birth, but later on, after Abel was killed, after he vanished suddenly. But I wonder if that confuses cause and effect. The name Abel might be an idiom. Take a modern example. In 1776, delegates of the 13 American colonies met together at the Second Continental Congress, where they hashed out the Declaration of Independence. The president of that Congress was John Hancock, and when he signed the Declaration, he wrote his name in large letters because, according to legend, he wanted the King of England to be able to read his signature without wearing glasses. From that story, the name John Hancock became an idiom. It became a generic way to refer to a signature. The name Abel might have been like that too. It could be that Abel was his name, but after he was murdered, it came to mean something else. It came to be a way to refer to something temporary, to something that vanished. And that brings me to the name Cain. In Hebrew, the name Cain means a spear or a lance. And I wonder if that meaning came later. I wonder if the word Cain only came to mean a spear after he murdered Abel, and it might even suggest how he did it. It's just a guess, but you get the same sort of imagery from the New Testament, because when John talks about Cain, he uses a word that refers to slaughtering or butchering animals. Cain buries Abel or leaves his body in a field and tries to act like nothing's happened. It's not clear how Cain thought Abel could disappear and no one would ask questions, but that could be because we think of this story taking place when there were only four people on earth. We assume the total population was Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, but there might have been lots more than that. At the end of this story, Adam is 130 years old. 
And elsewhere in Genesis, it says that Adam had other sons and daughters. So it's possible some of those children were around already. If you assume Cain and Abel were born right after Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, the number of children per woman in modern history suggests there could have been anywhere from 29 to over 800 people on earth by the time Cain killed Abel. I wonder if Cain thought he would get away with it because there were enough other people around. Maybe he looked at his siblings and figured one of them would get the blame. Cain goes on his way, thinking he's gotten away with it, but he forgets he's being watched. Cain ignored his first meeting with God, and now there's a second one. The story doesn't say how God spoke to Cain, but right after Abel dies, God comes and asks Cain where his brother is. And this is the most famous line in the story. Cain says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? It's a snide comment. At face value, he's asking if he's supposed to be Abel's babysitter. But if you stop and think about it, he's also using a play on words. Earlier, Abel was called a keeper of sheep. And now Cain is using the same word to ask if he's supposed to be a keeper of Abel. And then there's at least one other layer to his comment. And this one attacks God. At creation, God put Adam in charge of the garden to work and keep it. I talked about this before. Adam was supposed to watch or preserve the garden. Cain is taking that word, the title of the job God gave to humans, and he's using it to mock God. It's almost like he's saying, you threw us out of the Garden of Eden. It's not my job to be the keeper of anything anymore. Cain is pretty relaxed about murder. We don't know if any of it was premeditated, but this is not the reaction you get from someone who is nervous or worried. There's no remorse here. There's defiance. One commentary pointed out that the story in Genesis refers to Abel as Cain's brother seven different times. It emphasizes how terrible the murder was. But Cain doesn't care. He's so arrogant, so proud, he's deluded himself into believing he can lie to God and get away with it. When God came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they confessed. They didn't do a great job of it, but they confessed. God gave Cain the same chance, but Cain does the opposite. He denies it, and he does it with an insult. God knows what happened, and now he doesn't mince words. God says, quote, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Later on, the Jews believed blood that needed to be avenged would call to God, and you could only silence it by burying it. Similarly, in Arabia, they have a legend where the blood or bones of a dead man released a death owl, which shrieked until justice was done. Those beliefs might come from this phrase, God hears the blood of Abel crying out. So far, Cain's deluded himself into thinking God could be fooled, and now he has to realize God knows everything that just happened. And now God explains what's going to happen next. He says that Cain is cursed from the ground. Earlier, when Adam and Eve sinned, the snake was cursed and the ground was cursed, but people weren't cursed. Now Cain, the farmer, the person who took so much pride in his produce, is cursed from any plot of land he tries to farm. He'd polluted the ground. He'd ruined it by pouring human blood on it. 
and John Calvin said the earth itself acted as a witness against Cain. It wouldn't grow anything for him, and everyone would know why. Cain couldn't be a farmer anymore. Now he would be a wanderer and a fugitive. The words refer to someone who stumbles, who is always weak and staggering. Cain deserves to die, but instead God banishes him. And now Cain starts to complain. He says, quote, My punishment is greater than I can bear. And then as things start to sink in, he says, quote, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. End quote. In the ancient world, a clan was supposed to avenge the death of a member. This is where you get blood feuds from. Earlier, I wondered if Cain thought his siblings would get blamed for Abel's murder, and that way he would get away with it. But now that he realizes the secret is out, all those people, and there could have been hundreds, right? They're all potential executioners, because everyone on earth is related to Abel. There's no more defiance now. Cain goes right to despair. But he's not upset about his crime, only the punishment. There's no sign of guilt, just fear. Cain, the murderer, is suddenly worried someone will murder him. This gives us a glimpse into Cain's mind. It shows how self-absorbed he was. It shows how much he only thinks of himself. Cain is only upset about how Abel's death makes his own life worse. That's Cain. The next part of the story shows us the mind of God. Cain is worried about being killed, but God still loves him. God doesn't want people coming to take revenge. He doesn't want to start that pattern of violence. And even though Cain has rebelled and insulted God, God promises him that anyone who kills him will be punished much more severely than Cain is being punished now. God gave Cain a second chance earlier to make the right sacrifice, and now he tries to save Cain's life. And to do that, he gives him a mark. It's not clear what this mark was. There are various exotic theories. Some people think that a horn grew out of Cain's head, others that he had leprosy. We don't know, but whatever it was, it had to be obvious. It had to help other people identify Cain so they knew the risks they were taking if they attacked him. God gave Cain a mark to warn other people away from killing him. But for Cain, I imagine that promise wasn't much of a comfort. He'd ignored God's warnings himself. What was to stop other people from doing the same thing? This is where Cain's fugitive life begins. Because from that point on, he must have lived his life looking over his shoulder, waiting for someone else to ignore God's warning. The conversation ends, Cain leaves God and he heads east. He goes to the land of Nod. It means wandering or exile or trembling. Adam and Eve might have stayed near that gate to the Garden of Eden. They might have tried to stay as close to God as they could. But now Cain goes the other way and abandons God forever. This might be one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, and parts of it have filtered down through history. Records of sacrifices are found all around the world, and they go way back. It's one of the earliest known methods of worship. China might have the best example. Beyond the memory of the first emperor, who was also the first man to offer open-air sacrifices to heaven, 
They developed a tradition where every year, on the winter solstice, the emperor sacrificed a bull and bowed in humility to pay respect and give thanks to a supreme god in heaven. And this is an ancient tradition. There are records of it happening more than 4,000 years ago. It was over 1,500 years old when Confucius wrote about it in 500 BC. This annual sacrifice was so important to the Chinese that in the 1300s, the Ming dynasty built a new complex of temples. They take up an area around four-fifths the size of Central Park, right in modern Beijing. And these temples were still in use until about 100 years ago. Throughout history, sacrifices and offerings were a key part of many religions. And it's a practice that might begin with this story. But if so, people forget the message. They pass down the wrong tradition. They get things backward and focus on what we have to do to earn God's acceptance. You can see this all down through history. In Egypt, a person went before Osiris and claimed to be innocent of a list of sins. Their heart was then weighed on a scale against the feather of truth, and they were only allowed into paradise if their heart was lighter than the feather. In Mesopotamia, your place in the afterlife was based on your social status on earth and whether or not people took care of your grave after you died. In their system, it helped to have lots of kids to perform all the right rituals after you were gone. Greek beliefs about the afterlife shifted over time, but eventually they too came to believe in a place with different levels where people were either punished or rewarded based on how they behaved while they were alive. These religions get it all wrong. Both Martin Luther and Matthew Henry figured this out. They looked at people who tried to please God by their own efforts and realized they were just repeating Cain's mistake. This isn't a story about the relationship between two brothers or a story about a murder. It's the biographies of two men and their relationships with God. Abel's story is about faith and obedience. In the New Testament, it says Abel came with faith and God accepted his offering. The story doesn't seem to end well, but it's not over. Even 4,000 years later, God still remembered Abel's sacrifice because Jesus pointed to Abel as an example of righteousness. He was history's first martyr, the first person to die for their obedience to God. That's one man's biography. The second biography is about Cain. Abel came with faith, and the unspoken alternative is that Cain came without faith. He was the opposite. He was arrogant. He thought he was good enough on his own. And that's the point of the story. It's how one wrong belief that men could earn God's favor by their accomplishments or status rather than by faithfulness and obedience, how that idea led Cain from disobedience to murder to abandoning God altogether. Throughout the story, God offers Cain second chances. It's a record of how God never left Cain. But because of the path he chose, Cain left God. From Egypt to Mesopotamia to ancient Greece, that's a path people have followed. And even with this example in Genesis, it's still true today. Look at the religions around the world right now. How many of them require the believer to do something to earn God's favor? It could be charity or generosity or kindness. But ultimately, it's the same thing Cain tried to do. It's trying to gain heaven or eternal life or paradise or God's approval by effort. How often are we repeating Cain's mistake today? Like so many details, 
we don't know when or how Adam and Eve found out that Abel was dead. And we don't know how they learned that Cain was the murderer. You think of those stories where a mother finds out her son was killed in a war, where she gets the letter or the person comes to her door. But this is worse. Because Eve knew her mistake started it all. I think it's impossible to understand Adam and Eve's feelings. And Genesis doesn't try to put words to it. Instead, the story starts over. Eve has another son, and this time she names him Seth. It means appointed, or compensation, for Abel. Maybe she hoped Seth would be another Abel, another son who would follow God. And if so, this time her faith was rewarded. Seth's descendants did follow God. But as he had children and grandchildren, as his family grew, trouble was on the way. Because somewhere to the east, beyond the hills or the trees, beyond what they could see, there was a murderer wandering the world. A murderer who was starting a family of his own. Abel is gone, Cain is banished, and now there's a little boy named Seth. But Cain's story isn't over. The next episode is the history of two families, and it shows what happened when a rebel was allowed to go free. Until then, if you want to dig into any of the sources I used in this show, widerbible.com has references, links, and show notes with things that didn't fit into the podcast. There's also a place to ask questions and a page where you can subscribe in case you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.